DW Deutsche Welle. Pulse. Well, what a great way to kick off this week's edition of Pulse with one of the biggest hit that has gone viral globally. It's Mi Gente, a Spanish song by Colombian J Balvin featuring Willie William. In a period of only three months, it has reached over one billion views on YouTube. And it doesn't stop there because now the queen of everything, Beyonce, has added her voice and done a remix. Hello and a very warm welcome to this week's edition of Pulse. My name is Jen Nyinge and it is always a pleasure to have you on board. Coming up in the next 20 minutes, we get to hear the challenges being faced by young refugees living in Uganda. And a young Ghanaian Irish cook brings African cuisine to London and her customers cannot get enough of it. I like the chicken. I love the fish. I love the red bread and the jollof fries and basically everything and the puff puff. It's really well presented and very flavorsome being a, a Ghanaian. I like the hair take on it. It's very presentable. I love it. Well, for all that and much more, please stick around. Lift up your people, Texas, Puerto Rico, Milans to Mexico. Now, it's been over two months since a deadly mudslide struck Sierra Leone's capital, Freetown, killing more than 800 people and thousands others were left homeless. Those who lost their homes are still being housed in schools, churches and half-built houses, which even lack basic amenities. Despite the government giving monetary support to the victims, some say they've been left out after not being able to register on time. DW's Olivia Ackland was in Freetown and met some of them. It's around 7pm in the evening and I find a group of women chatting outside a half-built house where they now call home. They're sitting opposite a steep stretch of mud and rocks, where six weeks ago, the mountainside collapsed onto the community below it. These women share the half-built house with 190 other people. The building has no doors or windows. After a donation of $6.5 million from the UK, the Sierra Leonean government is now giving a cash transfer of $180 to each of those who lost their homes. This is a lot of money in a country where 60% of the population live off a dollar a day. However, some of the most vulnerable mudslide victims seem to have been left off the list. Bambi Kamara is staying in the house along with her cousin and two surviving children. She dusts down the three mattresses that she shares with ten other people. Together with her children, she says her bedtime prayers. Bambe was in the hospital on the night of the mudslide. She lost her husband, son and daughter, as well as their entire house. She remembers the morning after very well. Sunday, I don't brook. From there, even it's an aguna. 
On Sunday evening, after I finished the laundry, I went to town to take my treatment. It was raining heavily, so I wanted to go quickly and rush back. But I had to stay there because of the rain. When I was in the hospital, I had people saying there was a big problem over where I live. After they told me, I took a cup and then ran to my house. Everywhere I turned, people were crying. Everything was covered with red mud. My two children died. My husband died, and so did his second wife. But despite her losses, Bambe has not yet received any government help. She realized too late that she'd missed out on the government registration, and now she's worried that she won't receive any cash at all. From that Monday day, then begin the, we see people hold paper in the past. From that Monday, I saw people holding papers and moving around, but my attention was not with them. I was traumatized. All of us were traumatized. By the time we became aware that the registration was going on, it was closed. The registration don't close. Bambe is not the only one in the camp who's not registered. There are many others. One of them is Mariama Conte. She was traumatized and went to stay in the army barracks with cousins. My brother eight. I lost eight of my brothers and my son. My son was the one looking after me and taking care of my welfare, but he's gone. What can I do now? I'm just sitting down here. I was not there when the registration happened. I was in the army barracks because I was going mad. But Sierra Leone's national security coordinator, Ishmael Tarawali, says that the government registration opened for a month and those who didn't register can only blame themselves. Some of them brought this upon themselves. You know, when we, we, we tell them to queue to, so that they could be registered, maybe one NGO comes around with supplies and they will just jump from the queues and go to queue for whatever supplies that are there. All right, and uh, I think the responsibility of registering lies upon you, the victim. But if you leave the queue and go and rush for something else, then you have nobody to blame but yourself. Tarawali is also getting frustrated with fake victims. People have been travelling to free time from all over the country to get the cash handout. We've seen people coming to register who stay 20 kilometres off as far as Waterloo, as far as Bo, Bo City. Bo City is like uh, almost uh, 200 miles from here. When people are dishonest, it creates a lot of problems. Despite the slow process, the government says it wants to make sure that the right people are eventually registered. For DW, this is Olivia Ackland in Freetown, Sierra Leone. Well, let's now turn our attention to the East African country of Uganda, which continues to earn world recognition due to its hospitality towards refugees. At the moment, it's home to over 1.3 million refugees, mostly from South Sudan, who are running away from conflict and lack of food. In many countries, refugees are held in camps, but in Uganda, the approach is totally different. Refugees have a right to work, freedom of movement, they are also given a small piece of land to farm. DW's Seloneko has just returned from Uganda, where she got an opportunity to interact with some of the refugees, and she's with me in the studio. Thank you, Sela, for sparing time to come over. Sure. So where were you exactly in Uganda? I was right up in the north, which is basically in the northwest of Uganda, where basically the three countries, Uganda, Democratic Republic of Congo, and South Sudan meet. So it was right up in that corner there. And uh, how far is that from the capital, Kampala? 
It's about an eight, nine hour drive. So as you said, the Ugandan government has a very special, or Uganda as a country has a very special approach to hosting refugees. And instead of putting them in camps, they basically place them in settlements where they're each given a piece of land, a plot about 30 by 30 square meters, where they can build a house, they can start a business, they can farm a bit. And so they basically can kind of restart their lives a bit in those settlements. And uh, roughly, uh, what is the population of uh, young people in uh, those so-called settlements? There are very many young people. It's, and of course, it's also the women and children who often flee first from, these, uh, from the conflict. So about 85% of the people who come are women and children. And there was one point at which they called the refugee crisis children's refugee crisis because of the number of children that were coming across the border, partly unaccompanied, partly on their own, who were fleeing from the war and who were separated from their families. All of them from uh, South Sudan? All of them are from South Sudan. I mean, the, uh, from the 1.3 million refugees in Uganda that you mentioned, one million of them are South Sudanese. We all know it's really tough being a refugee. How are the young people getting the support needed to ensure that they don't give up their dreams? It's, of course, very difficult because, I mean, these children and youths have been uprooted. So many of them told me that they weren't able to go to school for several months or years because of the conflict. And so many of them say they really want to to go to school in Uganda. And the Ugandan government has also got a policy where they try and integrate children and youth back into school together with Ugandan children. So that is something that, that they're working on. But of course, it, it's always difficult if you've missed, if you're 14 and you've missed three years of school, then it's difficult to start up again. Let's now talk about uh, humanitarian assistance. Uh, has it been forthcoming, especially from the international community? There is still a huge funding gap. So uh, I recently spoke to the WFP, the World Food Programme Director in Uganda, and he said that at the moment there are still 62 million euros missing just in food aid for the refugees. It is something that needs uh, recognition. Ugandan government deciding to put refugees in settlement instead of camps. How viable is this project given the fact that the numbers continue to increase? At the beginning of the year, for example, they decided to reduce the plot sizes that they were giving to the refugees. But they're definitely looking at maybe shortage of land in the future. But at the moment, it's still going quite well. That was my colleague, Sela Oneko, who has just returned from Uganda. And she got an opportunity to witness Uganda policy of putting refugees in settlements instead of camps. But how viable is that project? Only time will tell. Young money, young money. Loving a thousand different flavors I wish that I could taste them all night No, I ain't got no dinner plans So you should bring all your friends I swear that to all of y'all my type Well, this is Pulse with me, Jen Nyinge. And yes, remember, in case you want to comment, drop us a line on our Facebook page, DW Africa, or leave us a voice note on our WhatsApp. It's now official. African food is one of the hottest new food trends in London, thanks to young cooks like Zoe Ajonia. Growing up in London with Ghanaian and Irish heritage, she hit upon the idea of hosting supper clubs to fund her creative writing MA back in 2010. 
a lot of hard work and a lot of cooking later. She now runs a pop-up restaurant in Brixton and has just published a cookbook entitled Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. Emma Wallis caught up with her at a trendy cafe in East London's Hipster Central. As a child, being born to two immigrant parents, that made for sort of an interesting <laughs> diet growing up. You know, on one side it's very Irish and on and then my dad's side, he used to bring home these like very exotic ingredients, exotic at the time, you know, fermented maize dough, dumplings like kenke and smoked fishes like tilapia and hot pepper sauce like shito. Zoe Ajonia looks right at home in this hipster cafe just around the corner from her warehouse studio, where she used to host supper clubs back in 2010. But the food she learned to cook from her father took her to another continent entirely. It's like that connection to home. And once I realised that, because we didn't have much of a Ghanaian family in London, food became, Ghanaian food, West African food, then became a route for me towards understanding that side of my heritage and culture. Starting with peanut butter stew. Very famous dish across lots of West Africa, cooked differently in different countries, but it's a very spicy peanut broth dish, which is um, you know, sweet and savoury at the same time, and people do love it. It's a great comfort food. Zoe is quick to point out that she is essentially a home cook, not a trained chef. But she's cooked in restaurant residences and festivals across the UK for so long now that her cooking credentials got her a first cookbook deal, which came out this year. Her aim, she said, is to make African food as trendy as tapas in London. So what I tried to do was create a space through the supper clubs and pop-ups that spoke to Ghanaian heritage and culture and music and the art and the photography and the culture of those places but was also welcoming and more of a contemporary dining experience for you know a UK or a Western market. I made that happen at a time when people weren't really eating or couldn't eat very easily African food and it'd be I guess I was you know ahead of the curve in some respects on on realizing that the African food culture was an important thing that people were missing out on and food coming from those African countries now is filling a real gap. South of the river in Brixton's pop venue, a collection of shipping containers piled around wooden picnic benches and bar stalls, is an eclectic mix of bars and pop-up restaurants selling food and drink from all around the world. The whole place is strung with fairy lights and is buzzing with young people who have come to eat, drink and be merry. Zoe's Ghana kitchen is full and there's a queue waiting to be seated in the tiny space on the upper level. I love it. Yeah. How does it compare then to food back in Ghana? I think food back home is a lot more rustic. It's just presented in a way that appeals to everyone and um, you're actually tempted to give it a go because of just purely based on presentation and um, the look she's created it very simple using just a few ingredients um, yeah so what made you come here I'm a bit nostalgic I'm on my way to Ghana so I thought why not stop over and eat something before you get to Ghana cooking in the tiny shipping container kitchen tonight is Zita from Hungary who was trained by Zoe so I cook for you the rice, jollof rice, it's vegan, absolutely vegan and spicy. 
and uh, lamb cutlets with peanut sauce. Which are not vegan. Yeah, which are not <laughs> vegan. <laughs> peanut sauce is vegan. <laughs> How long have you been cooking here? Well, with Zoe I'm cooking for two years now, but I'm cooking like seven years slowly. <laughs> okay. So, and why do you like Ghanaian food? Well, I love the spiciness, I love the flavours, I love, I love the cultures, I love this whole atmosphere and everything. <laughs> Zoe teaches me honestly for everything, so I, I, I just fall in love with it. <laughs> Back in Hackney, the Ghanaian and West African communities have noticed an uptick in the numbers of people coming to their stores and takeaways too. Can you just describe some of the vegetables? You've got yams here? Yam, plantain condo for our bankung and um, cassava dough. Do you find that lots more people are coming in having an interest in Ghanaian food now, not just from the Ghanaian community in yes, the UK? Yes, yes. Lots of people comes in, other tribes come in and different people are eating more Ghanaian food these days, yes. The first thing I realised going back in 2014 was the amazing plethora of fresh ingredients that were available. So yeah, just realising, having my eyes open to that amazing expanse of ingredients was great. For a while I was concerned about not to be seen as sort of appropriating a culture, you know, which is one of the reasons I called it Zoe's Garnet Kitchen as well, because I, didn't, I wanted to be it clear from the beginning that this was my expression of the food and my experience of it. She soon realised that she needn't have worried. Everyone has their own take on the favourites, even in Ghana. While I was in Ghana, I noticed that, for example, in my, my grandmother's house, three different women, you know, my grandmother, who's Fanti, my aunt, Evelyn, who's Ewe, and uh, Mercy, who's Ashanti, they all cooked jollof rice slightly differently. You know, They had different methods for cooking it and there was ownership of each version of it. So I felt that there was some license in that realisation for me to be able to interpret in my surroundings, in London, my version of it, you know. And back in Ghana, what some might have thought of as traditional foods like wache are constantly evolving, as Zoe found. In Ghana, you know, there's a dish called wache, and you have your shito on there and you, you know you have all of these things and it's like one dish called wache but also the stew is called wache, the rice is called wache and it's a street food so you get this for breakfast or something it's like five course meal for breakfast but it has noodles on the plate as well and I'm like where did that come from and it's because of the Chinese influence in West Africa over the last what must be 20 or so years but it's become so common to eat these endami noodles that it's become part of the wache dish now that she's put Ghanaian food on the map in London, she's about to turn her attention to the rest of the continent and will set off on a trip in 2018, going as far south as Botswana and down the east coastal regions. There might, she thinks, be another cookbook in the works and a new restaurant concept too, proving that business sense, social media and a lot of hard work can turn a home cook into a successful entrepreneur in 21st century London. For DW, this is Emma Wallace in the UK. Well, it's a wrap. That's where we end today's show. Don't forget, if you missed any bit of it or you want to listen it again, you can visit our website, DW Africa. On behalf of the entire team here in Bonn, Germany, my name is Jen Nyinge. Thank you so much for your time. Chase a chick, never chase a bitch. Chase no bitch, man.
mask on. Fuck your mask on. Mask on. Fuck your mask on. Percocet. Molly Percocet. Chase a chick. Never chase a bitch. Chase no bitch. Two cups. Toast up with the game. From full steps to a whole nother domain. Out the bottle. I'm a little. 